Why renter's insurance? Because burglar. State Farm Renters Insurance covers stuff for as little as 15 bucks a month, like when a burglar makes off with your new laptop. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. It's very much an idea that, in my mind, that it's not just one person, but we all contribute to things that happen for better or worse, and we are responsible for our own contribution. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm here. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm doing well also. You, which you're lying because you're not. But <laughs> I, I'm slightly under the weather, so hopefully my voice will make it to the end of this episode. I was kind of hoping we had a shorter episode today, but we do not. Tonight we're going to talk about the murder of Nora Parker and the trial of the two culprits for that murder, which were her teenage daughter, and her friend, Juliet. We normally start talking about the victim, but in this case, what there is to discuss here is how these two teenage girls grew up to be murderers. And so we're actually going to talk about their background first. Juliet Hulme was born in October of 1938 in London, England, to Dr. Henry Hulme, a brilliant physicist, and his wife, Hilda. Dr. Hulme is known for being on the team that would develop the hydrogen bomb for Britain in the 1950s. For those who are brushed up on their world's history, you'll remember that 1938, the year that Julie was born, was just before the start of World War II, When Germany invaded Poland in September of 1939, Britain declared war on Germany. A year after that, the Blitz, which was an eight-month campaign of massive air attacks on Britain by Germany, began. The Humes were living in London at the time, and urban areas were evacuating children to areas of lower risk. About half of all school-aged children in urban areas were evacuated during this period, Children under the age of five were generally evacuated with their mothers. Juliet spent some time after the Blitz in London, and her mother would report that she would wake up screaming from nightmares, and like a lot of children, she was likely suffering from shell shock. Shell shock is a post-traumatic stress disorder caused by the stress of constant bombardment. It appears she was at some point, sent up north to family. But unlike most young children who were two, three years old, her mother actually stayed in London with her father at the time and not with Juliet. This was the first in a series of early separations from her parents. Juliet contracted pneumonia at the age of five and was seriously ill She may have been sent with a nurse to Barbados to recover at some point. Some of the details on when she was where are a little shaky. After her younger brother was born, after she had recovered from her pneumonia, her mother became ill and Juliet was sent away to relatives while her mother recovered. In late 1947, Dr. Hume accepted a position as rector of Canterbury University College in New Zealand. It would be a huge change for the family, though a welcome one, since the climate would be much more suited to Juliet's health needs. Juliet had been sent to the Bahamas to live with friends for several months to avoid an English winter. 
These friends weren't friends of hers. They were virtual strangers. They were people her parents knew. It was determined to be better for her physical health, but she later reported that one of the sons in the family hated her and would beat her up. They then sent her ahead to Bay of Islands on the North Island of New Zealand to wait for her family to join her rather than bring her back to England so they could travel together. This was another move and another strange home for the child. Her family arrived in New Zealand in October of 1948, right around her 10th birthday. So for those keeping count, by the age of 10, she had spent the better part of five years on and off living without her parents for extended periods of time, and often with virtual strangers looking after her. This wasn't the end of the separations, though. She would be sent briefly to a boarding school where she didn't make friends and she was rather unhappy. She returned home in late 1951, and when school resumed in February of 1952, Juliet was enrolled in Christchurch Girls High School. Now, Christchurch Girls High School was a public school, which some people thought odd for a family like the Humes to choose. While from a well-to-do family herself, she would mix with people from other socio-economic backgrounds and matters of class. And these were not insignificant issues at the time, but Juliet was very bright. Her IQ test put her in the highly gifted range, and Christchurch Girls High School was one of those more rigorous schools academically, particularly for girls. Her parents hoped it would meet her intellectual needs. Shortly after enrolling, she met Pauline Reaper, who went by Paul at school and Yvonne at home. Yvonne was her middle name, but for the sake of this episode, and to make things as straightforward and less confusing as we possibly can, we will call her Pauline. Juliet was admired at school. Some students looked back and remembered it as a time when her very English ways were seen as sophisticated. The girls wanted to be her friend, and while she was sociable and funny, she never really connected with the other girls. That was until she met Pauline. Pauline and Juliet seemed an unlikely pair. Classmates remember Pauline as, well, just sad. She wore her hair shorter than the style, she didn't talk much, and she didn't really fit in with the other girls well. Yet she's the one that the sophisticated Juliet became attached to. Pauline was the daughter of Bert and Honora, called Nora Reaper. As sophisticated as the Hume seemed is how unsophisticated the Reaper seemed. Bert worked for a fish shop. Nora managed the house and took in boarders to make ends meet. They never had more than just enough to get by, and their house was cramped. Pauline had a sister 14 months older than her. She had left school by the time she was 16 to work. And there was also a younger sister who was 10 years younger than Pauline. She had Down syndrome, and she lived at an institution, but... Unlike the families that sent the kids to institutions and forgot about them, they visited Pauline's sister every single weekend and took her home for the holidays. What attracted Juliet and Pauline to each other isn't entirely clear, but we do know how they had the chance to become friends. Due to Juliet's weak lungs from her serious bout of pneumonia, she was exempt from sports and from physical education at school. 
while Pauline had also suffered a serious childhood illness that left her also exempt from sports. She had a bone infection called osteomyelitis in her leg, and it is a very painful condition, and it can be life-threatening, particularly in those days before we had these really powerful antibiotics. Pauline had several operations to clear the infection out. She stayed in the hospital for eight months, pretty much stuck in bed the whole time, and then that was followed by two years of painful daily wound care at home. It took her the better part of three years to get better, but she was left with a limp and occasional leg pain. So while everyone else is playing games, Julia and Pauline had time to sit and talk to no one except each other. They were both bright girls who were very imaginative, they loved to write, and they were also dealing with these health issues and separations from their parents due to them that the other girls at school probably didn't identify with. When you download this episode and you see the title, you would have seen that we called this episode the Parker Hume murder. So we probably should explain where the Parker name fits in. Pauline's mother, Nora, was not actually a reaper. As would come out later, Bert Reaper was the married father of two when he met a young woman at work, Nora Parker. Bert was 14 years older and he and Nora began an affair. They decided to run away together. Bert was not able to divorce his first wife because he hadn't been paying support, so they presented themselves as husband and wife when they relocated to Christchurch after running away together in 1931. Because of this, Pauline was technically illegitimate and wasn't seen to have claimed to the surname Reaper that she used all her life. She would be known in the press and the courts as Pauline Parker. Pauline and Juliet grew closer very quickly. Pauline saw the Humes as everything her family was not. She began to become more withdrawn from her own family, wishing she was part of the Hume family. She regularly threw tantrums at home, and she had a particularly difficult relationship with her mother, who seemed unable to handle her volatile child. She used threats and physical punishment in an attempt to control Pauline's moods and behaviours. But as so often happens, violence in the home begets more violence. Juliet didn't have a violent relationship with her mother. She did have a distant one. It's possible Hilda was a distant mother, and that is why she sent the strong-willed and moody Juliet away so often. Or it's possible that the separations interfered with the attachment between mother and daughter fully forming. Regardless, both girls were lacking in both solid relationships with their mothers and friendships with other girls their age. So when they came together as friends, they soon were friends to the exclusion of everything else. The girls both spent time convalescing with little to do except daydreams, so their imaginations were fanciful. But they both spent more time playing in their fantasy worlds than most girls of 14 and 15 years old would. They wrote books and stories with their characters, but they also wrote letters to each other under their characters' names and as though they were them. A lot of what we know about their relationship is from Pauline's diaries of the time period, she shows a very strong, possibly obsessive attachment to Juliet. While none of the entries come out and say they were intimately involved, it's hard to read some of the entries without coming to that conclusion. A lot is made of their alleged lesbian relationship. Juliet, for what it's worth, denies the relationship was ever physically intimate. 
I think the big question to ask is, does it matter? Through the reading I've done and the interviews I've watched, I think what matters only is that there was a perception that they were lesbians, and that colored their parents' attitudes towards them, as well as what would later happen in court. Regardless of the sexual nature of their friendship, their friendship had some peculiarities. They believed they were telepathic in their communication with each other. They believed they were set apart due to their genius. They later thought their genius was actually madness that set them apart, above, separate in some way from the rest of society. They developed their own religion, where the movie and opera stars that they idolized were saints, and the afterlife was called the fourth world, somewhere that only they and a few others in the world could even see. While on vacation in Port Levy together in April of 1953, Pauline wrote that they were able to see the fourth world together. She wrote that they could see it because they had an extra part of their brain, and only ten people on Earth had it. Whether this was her imagination or some shared psychotic experience, that would actually become a question for the courts later, but we'll need to cover the crime before we even start getting to the court part. Well, it's hard to say when a course is set that will eventually lead to the crime. It could be argued that the murder that would occur in June of 1954 was set in motion in mid-1953. Dr. Hume had been invited to lecture in England, and it was determined that Hilda would go with him. While travelling, they would stop over and visit America for a while. The trip would be three months long, and Juliet was given permission to stay with Pauline's family for the duration. But two weeks before the Humes were set to leave, Juliet contracted tuberculosis. Due to her already weakened lungs, she became very ill and was admitted into the hospital for treatment. Her parents decided that they both would still go on this trip and asked friends to check in on Juliet in the hospital. So here we have this young girl, sick and at 14 years of age, being left in the hospital for three months while her parents travelled the world. Her mother reported that when they returned home, Juliet was withdrawn from them and the only person Juliet cared for was Pauline. But it's really no wonder her parents left her again when she was ill Pauline visited her when she wasn't considered quite so contagious, but mostly they wrote each other long letters written from the characters they developed. Conversely, Juliet only wrote to her parents a few times in the same time period. The stories they wrote often mimicked what they saw in movies. They're inspired by Queen Elizabeth's coronation as well. These letters and stories became more detailed and even more violent as time went on. But these letters are what got Juliet through the most difficult time, and the girls grew even closer. After the Humes returned to New Zealand and Juliet returned home from the hospital, she did not go back to school. Her parents felt it was better that she stay home and continue to recuperate. She was also angry and withdrawn from her parents, really only cheering up when Pauline would come stay at the house. The closeness of this relationship concerned them, It's been reported in a few places that Dr. Hume suspected Pauline might be a lesbian. It's interesting that he didn't seem to think his daughter was, though. He actually even recommended to Bert and Nora that they should have Pauline see a doctor for a psychological assessment. 
At the time, homosexuality was considered a mental illness, but this wasn't the only issue the family was having with Pauline. She was angry and, like we said, prone to tantrums, but she was also losing a significant amount of weight and throwing up a lot, and they suspected she was bulimic. In what seems like an odd contrast to the concern she was a lesbian, she was sexually active with a man who used to be a boarder at the house. She was 15 at the time, and the man was a college student. The doctor who saw Pauline said Pauline's main complaint was that she was unhappy due to her mother's nagging. He told Nora that he did think the relationship between Pauline and Juliet was romantic in nature, but that it it would fizzle out. And he reported the same thing to Dr. Hume. The Humes decided to go on a family vacation over the holidays in 1953, but they didn't invite Pauline to come for part of it as they had in the past. In early 1954, the Humes quickly gave up trying to keep Pauline and Juliet apart. Juliet was no longer in school and she would become depressed and angry when she wasn't allowed to see Pauline. Allowing Pauline to come over, even if they were concerned about a homosexual attachment, it gave them a reprieve from Juliet's temper. Nora, though, was not on the same page. She would have preferred her daughter to never see Juliet again, as she saw Juliet as a cause of Pauline's bad behaviour. According to Pauline's diary, her mum would reward her good behaviour with permission to go see Juliet. Nora would tell Pauline that if she helped around the house and was being pleasant, she could see Juliet. Pauline didn't entirely trust this because they had been through this cycle before. The boarder that Pauline was dating, Nicholas was his name, he was kicked out of the house when the relationship was discovered, but Pauline continued to see him largely behind her parents' backs. Nora would tell Pauline she couldn't see Nicholas because her behaviour was so awful, so she tried to be good so that Nora would let her see him, but instead Nora saw the change in behaviour as proof that keeping her away from Nicholas was the right decision, that he must be a bad influence. But Pauline was able to go to the Humes as often as she was willing to be pleasant in her own home and if her weight was staying in a healthy range. She would spend the night often, but the Humes made them sleep in separate rooms. Pauline reported in her diary that she would often sneak into Juliet's room and they would sleep in the same bed. But Pauline's behaviour wasn't consistently suitable for her mother, and Nora told Pauline that she was not allowed to return to school when the term started in 1954. Her parents worked too hard to support an ungrateful child, and it was time that Pauline age 15 and a half, began contributing. Bert later went back on what Nora said and told Pauline she could continue school if she wanted, but she was happy not to go back at that point. Juliet was her only friend, and Juliet wasn't at school anymore either. Pauline had hoped to get a job as a governess, but this didn't work out, and her mother insisted she needed to learn a skill. She enrolled in a shorthand typing program. With neither of them working or in school full-time, Pauline spent even more time at the Humes. She found her family so unsophisticated and intolerable, and she just admired the Humes. She started imitating their English accent and even expressed joy in her diary when someone asked her about England thinking she was English. The more day-to-day mundane entries in her 
diary mentioned doing housework or cooking breakfast, and those seem like normal chores for a teenager in a house. But we have to remember her family ran a boarding house. So in addition to her parents and her older sister, she would be performing these chores for an additional three or four adults. So it would have been quite a bit of works. So I imagine escaping to Juliet's house where they had people who did those things for them would have been a relief even without the deep attachment to Juliet or the admiration for the family. The girls would use their days just writing, imagining life in their made-up worlds, and they started deciding their future together. They decided they wanted to go to Hollywood. They were going to meet the big stars, and they were going to become famous writers. They began figuring out how to fund this. One plan involved selling Pauline's horse, which Pauline had bought behind her parents' back. Another thing they did was they would steal things from the Hume home, little things, and they blamed it on a housekeeper who had sticky fingers. Pauline also went to her father's work in an attempt to steal money from the safe, but she couldn't when she saw a policeman patrolling the area. And then they hit on the plan of blackmail. Living in what used to be the housekeeper's flat attached to the Hume main house was a Canadian man named Bill Perry. Bill had come to New Zealand for a job opportunity. His wife came with him, but had reportedly fallen in love with another man on the ship across the ocean. She got off the boat in Australia and told Bill she wanted a divorce. Bill went to the local marriage guidance council after his wife asked for a divorce. Some say he went for counselling and some say he was a volunteer there. One of the trained volunteers and members of the board was Hilda Hume. At some point after meeting through the Marriage Guidance Council, Hilda and Bill began what had to be the most ironic affair ever. After the affair became more serious, Hilda moved the housekeeper out of the flat and moved Bill into it. Juliet was oblivious to this until one day she and Pauline saw a slight display of affection between Hilda and Bill that they weren't meant to see. This was their ticket to America. If they could catch Bill and Hilda in the act, they could blackmail them to stay quiet and afford the move to America. According to what Juliet told Pauline that Pauline then wrote in her diary, Juliet went up to Bill's flat one morning around 2am after she woke and couldn't find her mother. She heard voices from inside and found her mother and Bill drinking tea in bed. Hilda told her that her father already knew about the relationship. Juliet said that she told them about their plans to go to America in about six months and that Bill Perry gave her £100. This is just what Pauline recounts of Juliet's accounting. Hilda and Bill had a different version. In their version, Bill was ill and he was in pain and Hilda simply brought him a cup of tea at two in the morning. Juliet had come in and had a cup of tea with them. Hilda then brought her to her room, put her back to bed. She said that Juliet made some comment about having hoped she would have caught them. What doesn't make sense to me, though, if Hilda told Juliet that her husband knew about the affair, then why would Bill give her £100? Bill doesn't care. Bill claims that he didn't give her any money except... He bought her horse from her, so that was like 50 pounds. But he did say that she did threaten to blackmail him over this. And honestly, this explaining away of what was in Pauline's diary of them being in bed together, 
that may have just been to save face publicly after the diary was made public. The day after this incident, Dr. Hume asked the girls about their plans to run away to America, but the girls didn't know that things were already changing in ways they weren't aware of. Dr. Hume was unpopular as a rector, and the professorial board passed a vote of no confidence in March. So he turned in his resignation letter the day after the vote, and initially he made it effective at the beginning of next year. He later changed his mind, perhaps due to pressure from the university, and he moved his resignation date up to mid-year. In addition, he and Hilda were going to divorce. The entire family was going to be separated for some time. Dr. Hume and Juliet would head to South Africa in the very beginning of July 1954. Juliet was to stay with an aunt in South Africa rather than face the English winter, being that she was still recovering from the tuberculosis. So it seems the intention was for her to stay there for several months, if not a full year, to get through that first winter. Dr. Hume would continue to England to look for work and get settled. Hilda and Bill Perry, who would later marry, they were going to stay in New Zealand with the Hume's younger son until the end of the school term, and they would also then go to England. It's honestly unclear if they ever intended of having Juliet join them in England or if she was meant to stay with her aunt on account of her poor respiratory health. Juliet did not want to go to South Africa. She didn't want to face another separation from her parents, but even more so, she didn't want to face that separation from Pauline. The plan to go to America was thought. They didn't have enough money to buy tickets and leave at this point. Pauline was 16 and Juliet was 15 and a half. Juliet had a passport, but Pauline did not, and they'd require parental permission for Pauline to get one anyway. So the girls came up with a new plan. Pauline would go to South Africa with Juliet. Pauline's diary reflects that she at least believed the Humes were in favour of this plan, though they reported that they never told the girls anything of the sort and that they were clear with them that Pauline was not coming along. But Pauline believed that Dr Hume had essentially told her he would bring her along with the permission of her mother, and this is backed up by other statements. We won't know the truth at this point, but it wouldn't be surprising if the Humes did say they were okay with her coming, or at least didn't discourage that idea. They knew Pauline's mother was against the friendship and was in fact looking forward to Juliet leaving Christchurch for good. They could play both sides of this and not take the heat from Juliet for the separation by making it look like it was Nora's fault. And it worked. The girls, particularly Pauline, saw Nora as the one thing standing in their way of being together in South Africa. And Pauline decided the only way to overcome this was to kill her mother. Her diary started with just wishing her mother would die to eventually plotting her death. There is no evidence that Nora was ever asked directly about Pauline accompanying Juliet to South Africa. But it was accepted that she wouldn't have just said yes. But without a mother at home to help with the surly and rebellious Pauline, Bert, her father, might be inclined to send her away. Juliet would, as an adult looking back, say that she believed Pauline to be suicidal over their proposed separation, and she saw this as saving Pauline's life over her mother's. 
There is a discrepancy in the transcript of Pauline's diaries that is absolutely crucial in knowing when Juliet knew of Pauline's plan. In April of 1954, Pauline wrote, I told Deborah of my intentions, and she's rather worried, but does not disagree violently. Deborah was Pauline's name for Juliet. This quote seems out of context and is usually given the date April 13th. However, the date has also been transcribed as April 30th. This is important because on April 28th, Pauline wrote, However, I felt thoroughly depressed afterwards and even quite seriously considered committing suicide. Life seems so much not worth the living and death such an easy way out. Anger against mother boiled up inside me as it is she who is one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly, a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. If she were to die... This is the first mention of a plan of murder. So if the out-of-context comment about Deborah not disagreeing with her plan happened after this entry, it would mean Juliet knew months in advance of the murder plot. Interviews with Juliet as an adult make it sound like she didn't learn of the plot until shortly before it happened, and Pauline's diaries do reflect that the plan was not actually put in place until a few days before. The entry is dated June 19th, but it's likely it was the morning of the 20th. At that point, Pauline and Juliet had been together for a couple of weeks at Juliet's home, and they had this habit of staying up all night, sometimes until 7 a.m., so the dates could either be the day of or the day after, depending on when she went to sleep. In the evening of June 20th, Pauline wrote that they spoke more of their plans and that she was picked up and taken home at 2 that afternoon. We need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. It's largely due to our sponsors that we can afford to go to two episodes a week starting next month. Blue Apron, until February 26th, is teaming with Whole30 to bring you delicious recipes, and each weekly menu will feature two Whole30-approved recipes like seared steaks and warm lemon salsa verde with roasted broccoli and sweet potato. Kickstart your new year right with Blue Apron and Whole30. I've mentioned before how I generally use Blue Apron for my lunches since I work at home, but I made the really bad judgment call in December. As things got busy, I started using them for dinner, and now my family doesn't want me to use them for lunch anymore because they have been enjoying these meals. Somehow, all of my kids ended up eating bok choy. I never thought they would like it, but we tried it in Blue Apron, and it turns out they do. So coming up on our menu is the spicy pork and Korean rice cakes with baby bok choy. Now that I know they like bok choy, we can start incorporating it into our meals. Blue Apron is delivering fresh pre-proportioned ingredients to my door with a step-by-step -step recipe so that I can include my entire family and nobody has to wait in my directions because they can figure out these recipes on their own. Blue Apron is treating Insight listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash site. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com slash site, S-I-G-H-T. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. On June 21st, Pauline wrote in her diary, I rose late and helped mother vigorously this morning. Deborah rang and we decided to use a rock and a stocking rather than a sandbag. We discussed the moida fully. I feel very keyed up, as though I were planning a surprise party. 
Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully, and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So, next time I write in this diary, Mother will be dead. How odd, yet how pleasing. On the morning of June 22nd, 1954, Pauline wrote the last entry in her diary. I am writing a little of this up in the morning before the death. I felt very excited and the night before Christmas-ish last night. I did not have pleasant dreams though. I'm about to rise. Pauline had been purposely pleasant to her mother for a few days leading up to this day, so Nora was willing to have Juliet over for lunch and then take both girls to Victoria Park for a walk. At 2.30 in the afternoon, the girls with Nora arrived at the tea room in Victoria Park. Nora ordered tea and scones and the girls ordered soft drinks. Agnes Ritchie, who worked at the tea room and was the wife of the caretaker, she said that the group was normal, that maybe they were a bit quiet but nothing out of the ordinary. They left about a half an hour later for a walk down the path. The girls and Nora walked down the path that led to a rather secluded part of the park. To the east of the park was a treed area and a ravine. The girls had brought two things with them. Juliet had a small pink stone that she had taken out of a piece of jewellery. Pauline had a half brick from Juliet's house inside an old cotton school stocking inside her shoulder bag. After walking for a while, Nora said that she was tired, so she stopped while the girls went on. But they only went on for a bit ahead before they turned around and the three of them headed back. Juliet went ahead and dropped the pink stone on the ground. While Nora and Pauline caught up, they pointed out the stone to Nora as they planned. She bent down to see it, and that's when Pauline hit her from behind with the brick in the stocking. And this is where their plan falls apart. The girls were huge movie fans and had seen this happen a dozen times on the big screen. Someone is hit on the head from behind and they drop. The plan was to then roll Nora down the hill a bit and claim she fell. Except that's not how it works in real life. They hit her and she didn't go down. She put up her arms to defend herself while Pauline just kept hitting her. At some point, Juliet reportedly held Nora down by the neck while Pauline just kept hitting her. Juliet may have inflicted some of the blows as well. All told, Nora had injuries from 45 different strikes, though, mercifully, she likely lost consciousness after the first several. As to why the girls didn't stop after she was unconscious, it's possible that they were in a frenzied state at this point, but it's also possible that Nora was having convulsions or was making noises so that they did know she was still alive. Although the means of death changed, they hit her dozens of times instead of just once, they decided to just continue with their initial plan. Both girls ran a quarter mile or about 400 meters back up the path to the tea house and they were screaming and covered in blood. Agnes, the tea house worker, was making ice cream cones for two customers when she heard the girls screaming at about 3.30. The girls were yelling about Nora being dead or injured, so she called for an ambulance while her husband, Kenneth, grabbed some towels to render first aid. Uh, based on the amount of blood on the girls, he knew someone had to have been seriously injured, which is why he grabbed the towels, and he headed down the path with an assistant. Agnes tried to keep the girls calm while waiting on their fathers to come get them, 
Bert Reaper's line at the fish shop was busy, but she was able to reach Dr. Hume, who agreed to come immediately to pick up both girls. While waiting for him, Agnes asked the girls how the accident happened. Julia didn't want to talk about it, but Pauline said Nora had slipped on a plank and hit her head on a brick. Juliet was getting more upset as Pauline talked about it, so Agnes changed the subject just to talking to them about school and things like that to get their minds off the trauma. Then there was a lull in the conversation, and Pauline offered that they had tried to lift Nora to carry her, but they couldn't, so they had dropped her. She also made a comment about her mother's head hitting the ground multiple times. The ambulance arrived as Kenneth made his way back up the path. When he and the other worker had gotten to Nora's body on the old wood plank bridge, they knew there was nothing they could do. He left the other worker with her while he went back to call the police. Henry Hume arrived, left his name and address with the ambulance offsider, and left with the girls. By the time the police arrived, the girls were already gone. It didn't take an expert investigator to know that this was no accident. The police arrived around 4.20, and the two policemen saw the brick with blood and hair on it, but they also saw the cotton knee-high socks next to the path. They called the criminal investigation branch to come to the scene. They arrived less than an hour later, but this was winter in New Zealand, so it was already getting dark. The main clues that made it clear that this was not an accident was firstly, and most obvious, was just the sheer number of injuries Nora suffered. Secondly, the defensive wounds to her arms and hands were severe, and not those typical to what would happen in a fall. Third, the stocking was knotted at the ankle and torn at the toe. Fourth, she had marks on her neck, as though she'd been held down or possibly there was an attempt to strangle her. And lastly, there was a puddle of blood at her feet, though she was only bleeding from her head. Yet a detective would later testify there were no signs of drag marks. It made it obvious that she was still moving around to some degree after that first blow. Bert had eventually been reached, and a co-worker brought him to the park. He was at the tea room while police were investigating. Police asked his permission to interview Pauline at the Hume home, and he gave his consent. While this was happening at the tea room, things were busy at the Hume house. Bill Perry took charge. He had Henry call and cancel Juliet's evening plans, and then Henry called the vicar from the church that they occasionally intended to have him come to the house. Hilda ran a bath for the girls and got them ready for bed. It appeared they were in shock. Bill Perry then took the girls' coats to the cleaners because they were covered in blood. He didn't want them seeing the blood the next day. It might be too upsetting. So he wanted them cleaned immediately for them. A gardener would later say that the Humes gave him Juliet's diary to burn. This is often repeated, and the implications are pretty clear, but it's not been substantiated. We don't know 100% that Juliet kept one, even though Pauline refers to her having her own diary in her diary, so it's very likely she did. Regardless of whether it was burned by a gardener or just overlooked, it was never found. At 8pm, the police arrived at the Hume residence to talk to the girls. The girls were separated into different bedrooms and they spoke to Pauline first. 
She gave her first story, that she was walking with her mother with Juliet a little ahead on the path. Nora fell and hit her head multiple times on the ground and a brick that was on the path. Juliet and Pauline had tried to restrain her to keep her from convulsing and repeatedly hitting her head. They then tried to lift her to bring her to help, but she was too heavy and they dropped her. And that's when they ran to the tea room. The police then went to Juliet, who more or less repeated Pauline's story. They then let Bill Perry speak to Juliet alone. He would later testify that he laid it all out for her that there was no way this was an accident and she had to tell the whole story. When the police came back in, Juliet had a new story, that she was walking well ahead of Nora and Pauline. She didn't see or hear anything until someone called out to her and that's when she turned back. She came on the scene of Nora on the ground and bleeding and that she didn't actually see what happened. She got the blood on her because she cradled Nora's head at some point. She claimed she lied about seeing Nora fall because she didn't want Pauline to be accused of hurting her mother. Juliet's statement, this second statement that is, was typed up on a portable typewriter and brought to Pauline. Pauline was cautioned against incriminating herself as they now was treating her as a suspect in her mother's murder. Pauline wouldn't make a statement but was willing to answer direct questions. Pauline was smart. She could get an idea of the direction the police were heading through their questions without giving away more information than she cared to in the moment. In answering some of the questions, she backed up Juliet's denial of being there. She admitted that she killed her mother and brought the brick and the stocking. She said she got the brick from her own house. She refused to answer other questions like why she did it. She generally only answered questions that cleared Juliet. Pauline signed her statement. She was arrested for murder and was taken to Central Police Station. Before Pauline was placed in a cell, she was in the detective's office writing. It's been reported that she was writing a letter, but it seems more accepted that it was a diary entry. She wrote about having committed a murder, though she spelled it M-O-I-D-E-R, like moiter, which was some kind of inside joke with Juliet imitating what they thought a New York gangster accent sounded like. The entry also indicated that she didn't mind talking to the police and that the Humes were being very compassionate. It's the last line that stood out, though. She wrote, I haven't had a chance to talk to Deborah properly, but I am taking the blame for everything. Now, there is speculation that Pauline wrote that last line with the intention the police would read it, which they did and they immediately realized that they had been taken in by the girls, that Juliet had been there, and that Pauline was willing to take the fall for both of them. If she wrote it intending on the police seeing it, that also makes sense. Pauline didn't want to be separated from Juliet, whether it's Juliet in South Africa or herself in prison. Possibly she thought implicating Juliet in a roundabout way would mean Juliet would be brought to jail with her. She did snatch the paper and attempt to burn it by throwing it into the fire after they read it, but it was recovered before it burned. Either she had second thoughts or she didn't realize they would read what she wrote. She was 16 at the time, and 16-year-olds aren't always the most sophisticated in their thinking. She may not have understood the implications of what she wrote. 
More than just implicating Juliet, though, this entry told detectives that Pauline was in the habit of keeping a diary. They asked Bert, who was already at the station giving his own statement, and he told them that she did keep a diary. He actually bought her the diaries as gifts. They went with Bert to the house, and the diary was left out in the open. The recent entries, the ones that we already covered, implicated both girls in the planning. At 10 in the morning on the day following the murder, Pauline was taken to court and charged with murder. She was not granted bail. The police went back to the Hume home, and now they suspected Juliet of involvement in the murder. Juliet was told that she was a suspect, and she had a lot of questions for investigators about what Pauline told them. They wouldn't answer, and it was decided that they should wait until Hilda, who was at the hairdressers, to get home. After Hilda returned home, Juliet was cautioned about making incriminating statements, but she chose to confess anyway, and she gave the motive that Pauline wanted to go to South Africa, but her mother wouldn't allow it. Juliet was arrested and put in a cell with Pauline that night. At the time, anyone charged with murder was immediately put on suicide watch, so there were two constables keeping an eye on the girls for the night. Both reported being surprised that the girls chatted away in their bunks, more like they were at a sleepover rather than being in jail suspected of a brutal murder. The next morning, Juliet, who at this point was 15 years and 8 months old, she was officially charged with murder and remanded in police custody. The girls in various interviews with police and psychologists before they went to trial would repeat that they did not feel badly about what they did. They did what they had to do to be together, and Juliet even made a comment that Nora was an unhappy woman anyway. In a move seen as cold, Dr. Hume left New Zealand as planned. He did not stay in the country for his daughter's trial. It was decided it would be best for Juliet's younger brother, who had been away at school thus far, to be shielded from the publicity and the public backlash. The publicity on this case was international, so Dr. Hume took him to Brussels until the trial was over because there was less of a chance he would accidentally read something in an English newspaper. This left Hilda and Bill Perry there to support Juliet through this. In the 1950s, New Zealand did still have the death penalty, though minors were not eligible for it. If the girls were convicted, they would be held at Her Majesty's pleasure, meaning they wouldn't have a definite release date. They both had excellent attorneys who, since the girls were being tried together, decided to mount a joint insanity defense. They would argue that this was a case of folia due, a shared psychosis. Like in many countries, the defendants using an affirmative defense like insanity, self-defense, or what have you, they have the responsibility to prove it. This is often done by putting the defendant on the stand. But the girls came across as so arrogant and so lacking in remorse to the point that their attorneys were genuinely concerned they would just alienate the jury and just not have a chance. To prove their insanity, two doctors examined them, 
To counter this, the prosecutors had three more doctors examine them leading up to the trial. The trial started on August 23, 1954. The Crown called the witnesses of the day. The woman from the tea shop, her husband, the responding police drivers and the investigators. They then called Bert Reaper. Bert only appeared in court for his testimony. He did not sit through the murder trial and unlike the blame being put on Dr Hume, no one really blamed Bert. His wife had been brutally murdered and his own daughter was standing trial for it. There was also exposure of his family's private business, how he left his wife and children for Nora and lived with her without the benefit of marriage. But this also meant there was no one there for Pauline, while Juliet's mother and Bill Perry were there for her. Bert testified that Pauline was a normal child when she was younger. She was obsessed primarily with two things, writing and Juliet. He also said that he and his wife were both relieved when, in April of that year, when they found out Juliet was leaving the country in July. They thought things would go better at home and Pauline would return to her old self without Juliet around. He testified that lunch on the day of the murder was the two girls they were being pleasant and that Nora had made a comment about how pleasant Pauline had been recently. Pauline's diaries that were being used against both her and Juliet, they showed that this was a manipulation on Pauline's part. To carry forward with this murder plan, she had to get her mother to agree to have Juliet over and to go to the park with them and to be lured to that secluded area along the path. To do this, she would have to act more pleasantly towards her mother. Hilda testified that Juliet had withdrawn from the family and had only sent a few letters in the three months they were away while she was sick with tuberculosis, even though we know she wrote pretty much daily to Pauline. She would be moody and act ill when Pauline wasn't around, so the family invited Pauline over to keep Juliet happy. Hilda also testified that Pauline confided in her that she wasn't happy at home and that her mother used corporal punishment against her. Juliet would often get upset on Pauline's behalf when she would report about the fights with her mother. Hilda had seen Juliet's writing and noticed that the stories had started off as fanciful, but they had turned dark and increasingly violent. Juliet did not want to see her mother during or immediately after the trial. Perhaps it was because she perceived her mother as testifying against her, Though her mother testified that when she would see her prior to the trial, that Juliet didn't seem to have a very full understanding of what she had done. Bill Perry was also called to testify, but most of what he said we've already gone over in the sequence of events from after the girls came back from the park and before the police came to question them. We won't rehash that now. Juliet's defense called Dr. Medlicott as an expert testifying to her insanity. He's the one who initially said that they were suffering from folly adieu. In most cases of folly adieu, it is one person with the stronger personality influencing the weaker one. But Dr. Medlicott testified this case was actually equal partners, that neither girl imposed on the other. There was much debate then and even now among those looking at the case if this was true. Were they both equal partners in this relationship? Those who knew the girls have said that they can't imagine Pauline being dominant over Juliet, and that it seems obvious to them that Juliet was the stronger personality of the two. 
But Juliet, after being so isolated during the time that she was confined due to the tuberculosis and then not going back to school after she went home, she became so dependent on Pauline, she was the only person that she felt was there for her 100%. Perhaps it started with Juliet being the leader of the friendship, but it ended up more equal by the time of the murder. The diary entries definitely point to Pauline having been the one to initiate and plan the murder, though Juliet does not sound reluctant in joining in, well, according to Pauline anyway. The girls held a few beliefs that Dr. Medlicott pointed out as proof of their insanity and their delusional state. They had extreme delusions of grandeur. They believed that they were set apart and above everyone else. They believed themselves to be smarter, prettier and more wise. They believed that they could see into what they called the fourth world. This was another dimension or an afterlife that only a few people could see into. They also believed that they were telepathic. When examining the girls, he saw wild mood swings and he found their staying up all night a symptom of what he called growing exaltation which today would be more commonly called mania, from what I can understand. And then there was the nature of their relationship. Medlicott testified that the relationship was homosexual, though possibly not physical. The judge asked, how could this be? At the time, many people, even highly educated ones like lawyers and judges, they viewed homosexuality simply as the act of sex. It wasn't seen as equal to heterosexuality with elements of affinity, romance and attraction beyond the physical act. This is where the relationship comes into play. The prosecution said the diary showed that there was a physical relationship and this was proof that the girls were terrible and amoral people. He called them dirty minded repeatedly. The defense took the opposite direction. Homosexuality was seen as a mental defect, according to the experts at the time, and this proved that the girls were mentally unstable. The fact that they were lesbians or not seemed secondary to the perception that they were. A fair amount of Medlicott's cross-examination was about the various diary entries and if they pointed to a physical relationship between the girls. These entries were about people the girls called, quote, saints. They were the actors that they had passionate crushes on. Pauline would write in her diary that they spent the night going over how the saints would make love, implying that they acted it out with each other. But Juliet, when asked about it, said how could they make love when they were both girls? She came across as ignorant of lesbianism, which wouldn't be uncommon at the time. She may not have thought of what they did as sex, or they may not have done anything sexual at all. Like we said, the truth of their relationship is with them, and they denied a physical aspect. But both sides of the trial used this idea of a relationship to prove their side. Either the girls were simply bad, or they were mentally ill. On cross-examination, Dr. Medlicott had to confront a huge issue. The girls initially decided to pretend they were insane to get a lighter sentence, They later changed their mind, possibly because they learnt the truth that the mental hospital wouldn't be any better than prison, and it'd actually be more difficult to get out since there is no parole from a mental hospital. They'd be held there until they were cured, and that was a high bar. But pretending they were insane to manipulate the system did not play well. 
It's widely accepted that those who are truly insane are unaware of sanity versus insanity, and they're more likely to try to prove themselves sane. I think the greatest point for the Crown was made when they pointed out that even though the girls were delusional about the fourth world and about the saints, they were not delusional when it came to their belief Nora wouldn't let them be together in South Africa. That's reality. Seeing Nora as their obstacle was reasonable. Insane or not, their motive was based in reality. Pauline's defence called Dr Bennett, who is the same family doctor who had examined her previously about her weight loss and her relationship with Juliet. Prior to the start of the trial, he tried an experiment. We know Pauline and Juliet were jailed together at first, but then he had her sent to a different prison for a period of time to see if this time away from Juliet caused any change. He said when she came back, she was more cooperative in their conversations even calling some of the ideas she had, like, about going to America, foolish. She changed, though, when the interview continued on. She told him that she thought she could see Juliet once she was done talking to him. He told her she would actually have to wait several hours to see Juliet, and that's when she became profoundly distressed and started protesting. Aside from that, much of his testimony backed up what Dr Medlicott had testified to, There were a lot of questions about the girls' understanding of the wrongness of the murder. The sexual nature of their relationship came up again. Bennett continued that it was a homosexual relationship, even if it wasn't physical, and that was proof of their mental instability. The Crown pushed back that the relationship couldn't be physical since Pauline had heterosexual relationships. Dr Bennett then called Pauline a quote-unquote silly, adolescent, amoral girl out for experience. Again, I think this shows the general understanding, even of educated people, of sexuality and sexual orientation, and that this understanding was low. If a woman had sex with a man, she can also have a homosexual or homoromantic relationship, as though one excludes the other. A teen girl who engaged in sex with both males and females, was just out for experience and lacking morals. That was the understanding. There was no concept of bisexuality in many minds. The last day of the trial is one I would have liked to see, to be honest. The Crown prosecutor was trying to get Bennett to admit that the girl's calm detachment from the murder wasn't a sign of insanity, that a totally sane person could and would feel the same way. To prove this, he brought up Judas Iscariot, who, according to the New Testament, betrayed Jesus, very calmly betrayed Jesus. And the doctor would then counter that Judas did end up later taking his own life. Then the prosecutor brought up Macbeth, which, let me remind you, was a fictional play by William Shakespeare using a fictional play to prove a point about a real-life situation is just kind of out there. At this point, the prosecutor had tears, like, running down his face during the line of questioning. And this wasn't the only time he would have odd behavior. When they were verifying the the fact of the girls' ages, they had to do that on the record because they were minors and not subject to the death penalty. An American newspaper reported that he was sobbing at his table. I'm not sure that it's entirely relevant to the case or how it proceeded, 
regardless of the prosecutor's own emotional state, it does appear the girls got as fair of a trial as they could have gotten with the publicity around the case. The Crown called three rebuttal psychologists to say the girls were not actually legally insane. They both knew that they were killing someone, they knew it was illegal, and though they felt justified, they knew it was genuinely seen as morally wrong. The judge gave the jury instructions. They had two options, guilty or not guilty by reason of insanity. The judge told them that even if the girls appeared to have mental health issues, the jury had to be sure that they met the legal definition of insanity. In just over two hours, the jury came back with a unanimous verdict of guilty. After the verdict, Hilda Hume and Bill Perry returned to England. Juliet refused to see her mother, and Hilda had her younger son to think of as well. Hilda began going as Marion Perry. With the death penalty off the table, the girls were sentenced to be held at Her Majesty's pleasure until it's deemed they could be released. It was determined that they would be separated. And if you think about it, that would be the worst punishment they could give them. They were also not even allowed to write to each other. The girls spent their time in prison writing and working. Juliet seemed pleasant enough, though Pauline continued to experience mood swings. They were both to complete their education, and they even took university courses. Towards the end of her incarceration, Pauline began attending Catholic Mass. In November of 1959, after about five and a half years' incarceration, both girls were given new identities and released. Juliet was released two weeks prior to Pauline and was already out of the country when Pauline was released, and this was most likely on purpose. Their release was not announced until after it had happened, and that gave the girls a little bit of a head start to settle into their new identities before people tried to figure out who they were. Which makes sense. The amount of media that would have been surrounding the release, it would have been difficult for the girls to get away and get a chance to live normal lives if people knew where they were going. And being that it was only five and a half years later, they were probably still rather recognizable. It would actually take over 30 years before their new identities would be outed. Juliet had no restrictions on her release, and Pauline had a few regarding where she could live and work. And it's likely Juliet had none because they were repatriating her to England, whereas Pauline was from New Zealand and she was remaining there. Pauline was on parole in New Zealand until 1965. It has been reported in many places that they had a restriction that they couldn't contact each other. But according to an interview I saw with Peter Graham, and Peter Graham is the author of the definitive book on the case called So Brilliantly Clever, but this restriction does not actually show up on any legal paperwork. I wonder if perhaps that they were so strongly cautioned that it was a bad idea that they were under the impression they weren't to contact each other. Shortly before the release of the fictionalised movie of the case called Heavenly Creatures in 1994, the new identity of Juliet was made public. It would take more time to track down Pauline, though. Pauline had become Hilary Nathan. Her father had very little contact with her while she was in prison and after she was paroled. Hilary finished college in New Zealand, but eventually emigrated to the UK where she taught at a school for special needs children. 
She had entered the convent at some point, hoping to become a nun, though it wasn't a good fit for her. After her identity was outed in the press some months after Heavenly Creatures was released, she moved to rural Scotland, where she teaches children writing lessons. She never gave any interviews, but her sister has. She says she's still in contact with her sister, and they're rather close. She said that Hillary does feel deep remorse for what she has done, though it wasn't until a few years into her prison sentence before she really processed what she did. She has lived a reclusive life, which is quite the opposite of the life that Juliet went on to live. Juliet was given the name Anne Stewart. She travelled to Rome where her father, who had been remarried, where he was at the time, he met her with his new wife. When she returned to England, Anne moved in with her mother and stepfather, Bill Perry. She took on the name Perry, becoming Anne Perry, and presented herself as his daughter. She still saw her father, though he was well known in academic circles, and there was a concern that if Dr. Hume was seen with a young woman regularly, people would put it together that this young woman was the infamous Juliet Hume. Their visits would be casual and likely not as frequent as either would have liked. Anne lived and worked in America for a number of years, where she converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is more commonly known as the Mormon Church. She returned to the UK, and in 1979, she released her first detective fiction book. She has since written dozens of books and short stories. She learned her identity had been discovered after a journalist had called her literary agent and asked about Anne Perry's past as a teen girl who helped murder her best friend's mother. So her agent called her, thinking, let's go ahead and clear up this ridiculous story and move on. But Anne then confessed that the story was true. She immediately called her mother, who was still living at the time, and then she called some friends to give them the heads up that the story was coming. It was about to break. Because she lived a public life, she couldn't have really avoided talking about it. She was giving interviews and going to conventions and conferences, and she was going to be asked about it. So unlike Pauline, who was able to avoid the press as best she could, Anne had to kind of face it. In her interviews, she says she feels remorse for what she has done, but had to forgive herself to be able to move on, and she says she's lived a good life since then. Currently, Anne and Hillary actually live less than 100 miles apart in Scotland, but they do not have any contact with each other. It's interesting, considering Hillary and Anne didn't go on to commit any other crimes after their release, you cannot help but wonder if they were never if they never met each other, if the crime would have ever happened. It's definitely one of those, like in our Dee Dee Blanchard case, if Gypsy and Nicholas had never met each other, would either of them have gone on to commit murder? You you do have to wonder with these when two personalities come together and do something bad, would they have done it separately? I mean, they haven't since then, so you have to assume they wouldn't have. I hate diagnosing anyone through the internet or from books or from documentaries. Um, I, my Google medical degree does not qualify me. But 
you know, I have to wonder how Juliet's separation from her parents during her childhood affected her ability to form healthy attachments. So when she was 14 or 15 years old, how was that affecting how she attached herself to Pauline? And then on Pauline's side, I wonder how much there may have been an organic mental health issue. Even afterwards, when she was in prison, she was still suffering from mood swings and such. You know, I so I have to wonder, was Juliet losing Pauline just too much because that was yet another separation from her parents? And she was losing Pauline, the one thing she found to kind of cling on to. And was Pauline just honestly mentally unstable at the time? Whether that rises to the legal definition of insanity was a question for the courts, and they said no. But I do think there is some attachment issues and some mental health issues at the root of this. When you look online, you will still see people talk about what terrible children these were and that they were spoiled brats who killed the mother because they didn't get their way. But the more I look into it, the more I think there was there was more going on here. I think on the surface, it does look that way, but it goes deeper than that. As you said, the separation and the lack of ability for attachment, that is more important themes than just being spoiled kids. One thing that really strikes me is that both of these women turn to religion. Catholic and Mormon doctrines are both very strongly geared towards repentance and redemption. They believe that grace is what ultimately saves you, but there is this expectation first that you feel truly remorseful for what you did and that you seek a true confession, whether that's to clergy or to God in prayer. I just feel that is significant and should play into how we view them. Thank you guys for tuning in this week. We want to thank Jess from Murder Road Trip for voicing Pauline's diaries in this episode. Listen through to the end because we have the Minds of Madness promo running and learn more about that show. Allie and I are huge, huge fans. We want to thank everyone for participating with us on social media. We have a Facebook group and we have a Facebook page. I am on Twitter at InsightfulPod. Allie is on Instagram at InsightPod. You can email either of us or both of us at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. We have our website, InsightPod.com. We also have a Patreon if you want to make a monthly donation. If you would like to make a one-time donation, we have a donate button on our website at InsightPod.com. And for those people who haven't got their T-shirts, I'm going to make sure that they are on their way, at least ordered by They'll already be ordered by the time this episode comes out. And definitely go check out our Tee Public shop. We have all new merch in there. We have Insight. We have Insight Junior. Definitely go check that out. And we will see you here back in one week. What could an American dad a university professor, and a passenger on a bus possibly have in common. You can find out by listening to the Minds of Madness podcast, where we uncover the series of events and state of mind leading ordinary people to do unthinkable things. The Minds of Madness is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, 
Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps.